What's it about? <laughs> well, first of all, who What's are you? What's it all about? I'm Gina. And I'm John. And this is Gaming Real Life, a yes, podcast where we talk about the relationships people form with games. And the ways that games facilitate relationships between people. Boom! We're getting so good at this. Every time, as long as we comment every time how good we're getting at it, <laughs> it that means we're progressing. It almost feels natural. Yes. Like it's, it's almost gotten to the point where it's not like, hey, we're trying to be hosts and we're just being hosts. It's true. Well, we're close to, I guess, 10 episodes if you count our mini-sodes. Wow. Mm-hmm. It's around that number, so. Wow. Yeah. Wow. We have been, and we've had, what, 250 listens? Yeah, we just surpassed that number, which is oh, exciting. So, so Somebody in Tokyo might be listening to our podcast, so shout out to you in Tokyo. <laughs> Unexpected, to say the least. Uh, it could be a robot, I don't know, but if it's a real person, thank you for listening. I would like to apologize if you hear ice jangling. Uh, I do have a glass of ice water, but it's really hot. It so. is really hot. Sorry. Sorry. That's... Yeah. Uh, you do. know, happy hosts make good podcasts. So, you don't want me. You don't want me dehydrated and miserable, do you? You don't want me at my worst. <laughs> uh, speaking of me at my worst, now that's not as natural as a segue as I hoped it would be. So what are we talking about this week? We're talking about our board gaming biases. And what do we mean by that? I mean themes or mechanics that when we see them in a game we're like, eh, no. <sighs> not really interested. Things that make us automatically start to write off a game. Which is, which is of course, a shame, because uh, there are lots of good games and lots of different genres, and, I mean, it pays to be open-minded, doesn't it? It does, but just like they say, you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. Like, of course we judge our game boxes by their covers. That's like, why the covers are so big. Yeah. Apparently that's... <laughs> the larger the game box is, the more I salivate. No, I... That's... Basically why I looked at the cover of Trains and I was like, nope. <laughs> I think a lot of people have that experience with Trains. It, if you're near a computer or a mobile device, look up the game Trains by AEG Publishing. It looks so dull. It does. It, I mean, I love that, you know, I, I think train games always look a little dull anyway because trains are just boring. Mm-hmm. So sorry to... Any listeners who... That's my bias. <laughs> no, it's your but, own bias. No, I, I fully recognize that trains as a topic are just boring. and Some people find them very exciting. I I understand that to be the case. Some people fill their basement with games. Or not games, with trains. But well, I almost kind of respect the fact that AEG with the game Trains didn't even try to make it exciting. They just kind of put it out there like, hey, that's pretty much all this game is. This is a normal train. It's just trains. Yeah. That's, if you open this box, there will be trains, and uh, presumably that's what you wanted if you bought it, so. And if you've been listening to the podcast for more than an episode, you might know that I have a bias against just general transportation-themed games. It's the oddest thing. It is not the oddest thing. It's so... And now, now it is time for me to tell my story about Tin Goose, (laughs) which is probably my worst board gaming experience to date, honestly. (laughs) I... Okay. So, this was last year's Gen Con. We were in the Rio Grande game room, which mm-hmm. I often spend some time there when I'm at Gen Con. By we, you mean you and your husband. I was, yes. I was not present for this. No. We'd been playing games pretty much the whole afternoon in the Rio Grande room, and my husband wanted to play a game called Tin Goose, which had a old-fashioned 
airplane on the cover. I looked at the game box and I believe it was like a two hour game and it was the end of the day, we were gonna have to drive home, which we don't live in Indianapolis, so it was a bit of a drive ahead of us. I was getting tired, I was getting a little cranky, I had a migraine starting, it'd been a long day. And nothing about that game appealed to me because it had an old-fashioned airplane on the cover and was over an hour long. I had a terrible experience with this game. It's basically a game about the history of airplane transportation, which just saying that out loud makes me unhappy. And it was not a very forgiving game the one time that I played it, so I sort of stumbled in the very beginning of the game and I was never able to catch up. I was in last place the entire time. Mm -hmm. And none of it really stood out to me as a very exciting game. It was very much a game where you're constantly putting out fires, sometimes literally. That was mm -hmm. one of the things that could happen was that your airplane would catch on fire. It was just a very punitive game. I constantly was feeling like I was being punished for not playing well. Mm -hmm. And by the end of it, I had a raging migraine, I was very grumpy, and uh, I'm sure I will never play that game again. <laughs> so That's funny. I think a lot of people seek out games that are you described as punitive, and I think a lot of people like that in a game, but it, man, it makes a, makes a game hard to get into. It can be nice, but I just, I didn't get the impression from my one playthrough, so certainly this is just one time of me playing, but I didn't get the impression that it was a sort of game that was very well balanced because it was punitive for me because I was in last place. Mm -hmm. Like I was constantly being suffering because I was playing poorly in the beginning and I was never able to catch up because I was constantly getting dumped on for being in last place. Yeah. So yeah, that's not a good feature in a game. No. But and, so I have a question. How strong was your anti-transportation bias before this game? How strong was it after this game? I think I've always had this anti-transportation bias. It definitely existed before I played the game because just looking at the box, knowing what it was about, mm -hmm. it didn't appeal to me. And I think I'm generally pretty open-minded about games, but for whatever reason, I find transportation dull. I don't get excited about cars, planes, trains, none of that stuff. One thing that is worth mentioning, transportation-themed games typically have what on the box? A train. Like a vehicle, or right? a plane, yes. And what do they typically not have on the box? Things that bring me joy? I don't know. I also <laughs> I think it probably... Say, I was going to say people. Well, that too, but I also think it probably comes from the fact that I am frightened of cars. Like, I actually don't have any fear of flying, but I do have a lot of fears about driving. I find driving very stressful in general because cars are death machines and huh? people die in car crashes way more often than plane crashes. Yeah, so I, I was hearing that thinking that's not really an unreasonable fear when you get right down no, to it. No, it's a very reasonable fear and it's it's also something I can't control very well because I can be an amazing driver and if somebody else is being an idiot, I can still die. Right. Like, I am just waiting for those self-driving cars. I will be first in line. Uh -huh. So that's probably a little bit of it too, but it's just not... But yeah, I mean, I, I, guess I, I, I guess I was looking at it like transportation games are these very like cold, mechanical, like it's games mm. about appreciating things. That's a good and point. And there are things that, you know, uh, truth, uh, really, I, I was, I was given the topic of trains a hard time. Truthfully, they are marvelous things, if you really think about it. But it's just hard to get excited about a big hunk of metal that goes 
on one path always. I, I don't know. When I play a game, I like to imagine myself in the world of that game. I love to imagine myself, you know, as a wizard or, or what else? Just being, being a part of this environment that the game is presenting in an interesting way. Like, I'm building cities. I'm casting magic spells. Mm -hmm. If I'm playing a transportation game, I'm driving a train. I'm building a train track. <laughs> and in a way, while other games suggest large swaths of possibilities, there's this way that transportation games suggest doing one thing correctly. And it's just about how well can you do that thing. They don't really... They don't really evoke a feeling of freedom. Hmm, that's a good point. I know that some people do associate transportation, especially cars, with freedom. Actually, it was a big moment for me because I was reading Shut Up and Sit Down's game news mm -hmm. when they were talking about the games from Origins they were most excited about, and they mentioned Pit Crew, and I actually want to play that game. It was a, it was a growth moment for me. So there's a difference, I think, in whether these games just fetishize the medium of transportation as I think trains games often do, or whether they're about something more than that. Like, Pit Crew is about the chaos that comes from having to do this really pretty intricate task at an unreasonably fast speed. Or another place where my mind jumps is a game like Takedo, which is a game about traveling, but it's very much focused on destinations. Yeah. Whereas, I know vehicles are often associated with freedom, but I don't think that's what a lot of the games about vehicles are interested in. No. Those games are just interested about the vehicles themselves and about just how the clockwork machinery that makes these things tick comes together. And I do think some people, particularly a lot of board gamers, just love that kind of rigid structuring, and that's a lot of why people play board games, because they like systems that just fit together. And some of those games are also about building a network, and I don't know why it feels so much different to me than building a city. I guess because a city feels more alive to me than, like, a network of train depots. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't... It just doesn't capture my imagination that same way. Yeah, that, that's totally fair. So we got to this long conversation about trains because, well, what was our project? We, we took on upon ourselves to actually play some games that did not appeal to us at face value, to play some of the games that hit up our biases. The idea was to question the... Because the thing is, when you say you don't like transportation games, that might be a bias, or you might just not like transportation games, mm -hmm. you know? Who's to say how unreasonable that actually is? But there's so many transportation games, certainly there have to be ones out there that I would still enjoy. So the goal, I think, was to investigate our biases by trying to challenge them and see if we could get a little more insight into why we have these biases and, you know, if there are exceptions to these rules. Mm -hmm. So I suggested Trains because it's actually one in my collection, and I think it's great. Mm -hmm. If you've never played Trains, it is a deck-building game in the style of Dominion or the DC deck-building game with the, I think, very important twist that instead of the cards just being worth, you know, normally you buy cards and those cards let you buy more cards and eventually those cards start being worth points. Trains, those cards instead let you build train tracks on a physical board. You actually, you have cards just like you would in any other deck building game, but 
those cards are all about letting you interact with a board where you're building routes to different cities. And at the end of the game, you score points for the routes that you've built, mm -hmm. which adds a really nice layer of interactivity to it, because you can like cut people off or piggyback off of other people's routes, and that's, I think, why I like it. I appreciate that, that, there's, that there's an openness to that game. So it's not something like Ticket to Ride, where there's one or two tracks, and once it's filled, nobody else can go there. It costs more to go to a place where somebody else has already put down a, a train or a station, but... It's always available. And I like that we got to play a four-player game of that one because we did end up piggybacking off of each other's routes actually a lot in that game. Mm -hmm. And it made it far more interesting than I think it would have been if we'd just been doing our own thing. Yeah. We should mention that when we were playing these games that go against our biases, we were trying to seek out games for each other that we thought were quality games. We weren't trying to pick stuff that we all thought were going to be terrible. <laughs> and one thing I appreciate about... I, I think I... I thought of Trains the way that I think of Quentin Tarantino movies. Okay. So, I don't love Quentin Tarantino movies in general. Mm-hmm. Um, except for... I'm someone with Uma Thurman. Kill Bill. Except for oh, Kill Bill. So I do really enjoy Kill Bill. Oh, it's a great movie. But I'm not someone who can handle violence in films very mm -hmm. well, and so even though I appreciate the artistry and the quality of those movies... Mm -hmm. I'm never going to seek them out. Like, I just don't enjoy them that much. But that doesn't mean I feel like they're poor movies. Right. And that's how I felt about Trains. I can see mechanics-wise that it's a quality game. I know why it would appeal to some people. I didn't dislike playing it. I would never buy it for my collection. That's fair. And, I mean, ultimately, if theme is still so much of what draws us into games, so a game could have really quality mechanics, but that might not be enough. You want to look at the box and think, this is cool. Yeah. And it's funny, because when a game's on the shelf, you don't really see the box cover. You only see it when you pull it out. And it's always tough when you have to be like, don't pay attention to the top of the box. Like, don't look at Fury of Dracula and how he looks like Count Chocula in the third edition. <laughs> I promise it's a good game. I, I do feel like Trains is a game that when I pull it out, I do have to be like, okay, now I know what it looks like. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, I, do, I will say, though, I, whereas I think uh, Ticket to Ride is a thoroughly mediocre game. Yeah. Um, what, what I think it is is Trains replaced Dominion in my collection. Because Dominion is also a game that barely has a theme. Mm -hmm. And the two games play so similarly. Yeah. They, have, they share so many mechanics. It's just the fact that there are these two games that I think are about comparably good, that practically the themes don't really do much for the games. But one of them just has a little extra layer. It's just like Trains had to replace Dominion. Yeah. And it's still a pretty accessible game. It's still pretty easy to learn. And really... The theme of Trains does more for the game than the theme of Dominion does for it. Let's be real. But I think I could really like that game and maybe even want to buy it if it had almost any other theme. That's fair. Which is the crazy thing. Like, there's so many options. It drives me crazy sometimes that board game designers constantly fall back on the same space and wizard and train themes when... Mm -hmm. You know, the whole world open to you. There's so many other interesting themes that we haven't even touched on that would make the game so much more evocative. And I think it's because they know that they appeal to a lot of people, but they're not willing to just take the chance. But also an accessible theme has the advantage of you don't need to explain why you're building tracks from one city to another because we already understand it. And that's the advantage of taking a tried and tested theme is that 
you can streamline a lot of the rules explanation just by people understanding this is how trains work and this is what you would typically be trying to do with trains so right away there's a huge chunk of the game that's already immediately understandable by everyone just by virtue of what the game's about it could have been about lobster fishing and putting down nets across <laughs> the ocean it could have been about anything i mean i hear what you're saying it is a very simple to understand but i just think it's i'm not a creative person but i feel like i could probably come up with at least three other themes that would have worked for that game that's fair I'm glad that I tried it, though. I'm, I definitely enjoyed it more than I expected to based on the box art. Oh, that's good. I'll take that. Which uh, one of your biases do we want to talk about first for you? Um, well, oh, that's a good question. Uh, we'll start, but let's start by talking about games that are just overly cartoonish. So, a la carte. A la carte was the one we tried. In general, uh, okay, here's the thing. I, this is why I wanted to raise the question of whether these are truly just biases or whether it's us learning from experiences, because I do think many of the games I've played with cartoonish art on the box were just bad. That makes me think of Yellow. Yeah, is that how it's pronounced? Yellow? I-E-L-L-O. That particular oh, I, company? Yeah, the, so these are the makers of uh, games like King, King of, of Tokyo. Tokyo, most notably. Also, Biblios, one of my favorites. Pingo Pingo. Pingo Pingo is a very <laughs> good one. Yeah, they have a lot of cartoonish box art in general. Yeah, I guess I just knew those games by reputation already. Mm -hmm. But even when I see, knowing that ELO's made these really good games. Honestly, whenever they have anything new on the shelf, I still kind of just look past it. Yeah, they're not necessarily my favorite board gaming company. I just think a lot of their games tend to be more family-friendly, so they might be good for when you're drunk, but in my day-to-day -day gaming, they don't appeal to me as much. I do like that they're very creative about their mechanics. Mm -hmm. And I should also say, King of Tokyo is not my favorite game. No, no. I just no. don't really appreciate the knockout component. And even though I do really enjoy a risk management game in general. Mm -hmm. But I think I also just got a little tired of King of Tokyo because it was so popular. Fair. Biblios is not cartoony at all. No, it's not. Uh, but yeah, we're getting sidetracked. I think my, my bias against cartoonish games, I think, largely comes from having played games like Munchkin and Che Geek or... Mm. Uh, uh, chrononauts, things like... Oftentimes these games are take-that games, very simple, and the, it's a game, it's a style of game that I would describe as a box of jokes, because they're oh, sold as yeah. being humorous, and they are kind of, because all of the cards have jokes on them, but the problem is, once you've kind of played through these games once or twice and you've seen the jokes, then there's really nothing else there. Nothing new to discover. Right. Like and the exploding kittens. Yeah, I think that's probably the most popular example of this phenomenon now, actually, mm -hmm. of a game where the entire game is just the art on the cards. That's the joke. And yeah. once you've seen it, you wouldn't want to keep playing this game to get good at it. Mm -hmm. Which I think makes it a poor investment and really not a good use of your time. Well, and I think sometimes board game companies can rely on 
you know, cartoonish or cutesy box, knowing that will appeal to some people, because I know when I saw Takenoko, I saw that little panda, and I was like, yes, I want to try this game. Like, it made me more excited and interested, and everything. I've, I've actually never played Takenoko, so I can't say for sure, but generally, a lot of people I trust have told me that it's not a very good game, mm-hmm. and so I, I wonder sometimes if they're trying to cover up for poor quality product. In general, the impression I get is these are games that don't respect their audience. These are games that think we're just going to give you something that's so simple that it won't challenge you at all, and that's what the box art to me communicates, is this is friendly, this is not challenging, this won't ask you to stretch yourself at all, Mm -hmm. which, of course, then on the flip side of that is it also can't be rewarding or incredible or any of those things. It can always just be kind of a bland experience. And there's so many family-friendly quote-unquote games that are really fun. I mean, there's Tuk Tuk Woodman, uh, pretty much anything by Haba, you know, Go Cuckoo... Talk, Dancing talk, eggs. Talk Talk Woodman is a kind of cartoony one. Uh, hey, That's My Fish just jumped to mind. Oh, that's a great one. It's an excellent game, but very cartoony. Yeah. And it should be, it fits. But, but it's uh, not a really family-friendly game. Pers- I mean, a younger child could play Hey, That's My Fish, which is a very much like a logic kind of puzzle game. Mm-hmm. Uh, very small box, definitely something you could bring along to a cafe. Well, and I guess... What this discussion kind of shows me is that, like, it's not that cartoony games are bad or even that I don't like them. It's that I'm skeptical of any... Because I know that games use sort of cartoony or humorous themes to disguise the fact that there's really no substance. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's why anytime I see one of the... I, I don't really give those games a second glance most of the time. Well, there are biases that I think the larger board game community as a whole has, especially uh, what comes to mind for me are franchise-based games, things based on Harry Potter or Star Wars or Game of Thrones, because we know that that theme can be enough to sell a board game even if the quality is not up to par. And I do think that there's been some shifts in recent years to having better quality games that come out of franchises. I mean, a lot of the Star Wars games from Mm -hmm. Final Fantasy or... or Fantasy Flight? (laughs) From Fantasy Flight, we're keeping that in, are great. Fantasy Flight has done a great job with that IP. Exactly. And I was talking to you about how Game of Thrones Hand of the King is a wonderful, simple little logic game that I really wrote off at first glance even though I've had really great experiences with a lot of the Game of Thrones games. I mean, I don't love the rulebook on the general Game of Thrones board game. Nobody does. No, it's. I still don't understand how boats work. I don't <laughs> understand. But if you really enjoy I'm, a cutthroat... I'm throat, editing out that comment and just... Gonna, <laughs> at the top of the episode, you'll just be saying, I still don't understand how boats work. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry. No, it's, I just... Uh, if you do enjoy a really cutthroat game that involves some bargaining with your friends, it, it can be a nice way to spend a few hours. It's a game I don't feel the need to own, but that I have enjoyed playing from time mm-hmm. to time. So I think there's been a shift, but even now, if I see a board game with Harry Potter on it, my gut assumption is like, oh, that's probably a crappy game. Yeah, and I think it's partly just because... Part of the reason why the the joke-in-the-box games can get away with being bad is because they're often very cheap, Mm -hmm. and so they'll still sell. And I think the same thing with the themed games is slap Harry Potter on anything, you'll sell a few copies of it. Oh, yeah. I remember getting a copy of a Harry Potter board game 
when I was in high school because a relative of mine knew that I liked Harry Potter. So I guess she was like, oh, this is a board game about Harry Potter. She'll definitely enjoy this as a Christmas gift. It was not a very good game. But Mm -hmm. it's just the kind of thing that you don't have to know a lot about a person to get them that kind of Mm -hmm. gift. And you don't have to know much about board games to assume that that's a good gift. Right. Yeah. So anyway, to challenge this bias against sort of cartoonish games, I tried a la carte, which, I mean, part of the reason why this seemed like a reasonable choice was because we've been friends for a few years now, Mm -hmm. and I've seen this on your game shelf numerous times, and it's one, I never even picked it up to look at it. Yeah. Because it just, you know, even knowing that it's in your collection, and your collection's very well curated, my default assumption is, oh, this isn't for me. This is... Uh, this is just, it's going to be too simple, it's not going to be engaging. And it is, it does occupy a very unique space in my games collection, because I do have a limited selection of games that I can play with younger children, Uh, and especially since one of our closest friends has uh, a kid, it makes sense that I have a few games that she can be included in. But it's also just kind of a fun game, I think, in general. Like, I've only played it with adults, and it's never going to be, like, a wonderful, challenging, incredible game, but it's always a fun, pleasant time. It's definitely a game that would also be good to play drunk. I did enjoy it. So, a la carte is a game about cooking, and right away, one of my favorite things about the game is that every player has a little cardboard stove mm-hmm. with it a has little toys. metal pan. It has toys. (laughs) And a big part of the game is putting seasonings or different cardboard food items into that pan and manipulating them, and that's just great. I love a game with toys. That was another thing about Dragon and Flagon that really appealed to me, that it came with furniture. (laughs) I think it's just because I always wanted to have a dollhouse as a child, but continue. No, I mean, I I think that's absolutely true. I think a lot of what makes modern board games appealing is that they give us toys. So, yeah, uh, board game publishers, more toys, please. Please. They really enhance the experience. So the main thing in the game is you have to heat up your pan, but not too much because you'll mm-hmm. burn your food. Yep. So you roll the dice to determine, there's like a risk reward element where you roll your dice and you're trying to get a number that's like in the sweet spot for cooking your dish, but not too hot. And anytime a player rolls a dice, they could also potentially heat up not just their stove, but everybody's stove. Mm-hmm. So there's also a risk to having dishes on the stove for a long time because somebody else could burn your dish. Yeah. But the main thing that you're doing is you're trying to season your dishes properly, and what you have is you have these little plastic jars of little plastic uh, seasonings, Mm -hmm. but they're shaped in such a way that you have to just hold the jar over your pan and tilt it, and sometimes one sometimes nothing comes out sometimes like one little seasoning pellet comes out and sometimes like you just dump half of the pepper yeah it's a little bit like if you've ever been cooking with a loose spice packet and like you just dump a whole thing of you just dump a whole jar of pepper into your soup exactly and you can over season your dish which will also ruin it the other fun little physical element of that game is everybody has an omelet or no a crepe a crepe a crepe that you can also flip and you have to physically take your little pan and flip a tiny little cardboard crepe in order to get extra that points. That was hard. I suck at it. It's the hot, it's the most points you can get for doing anything in the game, but you can also just waste the entire game trying to do it. Yeah, I wasted a lot of time. And the game that it actually reminded me of a little bit, it 
It reminded me in some ways of a game like Galaxy Trucker, where the joke is it's dexterity challenges that really nobody should be good at. Yeah. But since everybody's equally bad at them, it's fine, because you're never the only one suffering. It is a very unusual physical game. I don't own anything else like it. Right. It is really like a madcap adventure. I will say we've only played it with the two of us, and it's definitely improved with more players. I thought so too, because there are special items that let you kind of interact with other people's dishes, mm -hmm. and I felt like that was an element of the game that just in our little two-player game yeah. didn't end up adding much, but I could see the potential for I love switching stoves with somebody else. That was funny. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, it's definitely a game I need to pull out a little more often when I've been drinking. Yeah, but yeah, I had a good time with And I, I think having this discussion, it kind of reminds me that it's not that I don't like cartoonish games. I don't trust them. And it is sort of a problem that when you put cartoon-style art on your game, it's supposed to make it more accessible. But I think probably not just for me, probably a number of gamers, it kind of has the opposite effect. Yeah. Like Because when I spend a lot of money on a game, I want to know a lot of care and a lot of effort came into making a quality product. And mm -hmm. I don't think cartoon graphics communicate that to me. And I think it's a little unfair, but there it is. So. Well, and everybody's got biases. Chime in on the comments, too, if you've got a bias like this, or if you are in a similar situation. We're on Facebook, and we're on Instagram, and, mm -hmm. you know, you could go on to SoundCloud or Stitcher and leave some comments. That would be great. But there's nothing inherently wrong, I think, about having these biases. It's just... I mean, there's always going to be wonderful games that I could play, even if I never played a transportation-themed game for the rest of my life, but I could be missing out on something great. So, it's kind of, it was kind of a fun experiment, I think. Yeah, it definitely, it was just a reminder to, like, keep challenging ourselves, and if nothing else, like, now you know that if somebody brings trains to the table, or I know if somebody brings a la carte to the table, like, I'm not going to groan about it. Yeah, I'm not going to roll my eyes. I actually had a pretty good time playing Memoir 44, which is another game we played because of this experiment. So let's talk a little bit about this bias. I don't love war games. I mean, <laughs> I think it's just because I'm a Quaker, and I, <laughs> so I'm a pacifist, and I, I don't really like... Again, like that's not a universe I want to be a part of. I don't want to see myself in the midst of, of a war, and also I think a lot of war games treat war as a fairly light subject. Mm -hmm. It doesn't... I don't think a lot of war games, at least I've been told, can really capture the, the gravity of it or the awfulness of it. Right, they're very casual about it. One thing that I think we can rightly criticize a lot of war games for, even ones that really make a point of trying to be accurate or trying to be sort of serious and solemn, they still fall into the trap of encouraging you to think about your units as expendable resources. Mm -hmm. Those are often the most optimal ways to play those games and you're never penalized for that. But of course, in the real war in a real war those are people with lives, with families, with things they want. Yeah. And I just the the general idea of of playing a game about war this might be a controversial thing to say, but it it's a little distasteful to me the mm -hmm. idea of of gamifying this sort of thing but I do think that comes from again my personal like religious and spiritual <laughs> biases and that 
yeah, I, I interact with it in a very different way than a lot of people probably would. No, and I mean, on the one hand, I look at a war game and I think, well, okay, this comes from a long-standing cultural tradition across multiple cultures of just, you oh, know, yeah. many of the games that have been played for many years have been symbolic representations of war. We probably wouldn't be in the golden age of board games if not for war games, because a lot of the early standout games were war games. Exactly, but at the same time, I think it's valuable that you're bringing that bit of perspective to war games and of course nobody's going to take war games away no but if designers could think a little bit more about trying to represent war in a way that does a little bit of justice to the fact that yeah this is actually a pretty serious topic mm -hmm. that, i know there that are some valuable. that that have i've I, i've heard some really good things about some of these war games i wish we could have found time to try and an abyss and it really yeah. was one where we would have needed I, I think i've talked about it on the podcast before so i won't get into it it's great but it really is one that we needed a full set of four people mm -hmm. to play that one properly maybe some other time I think that's a good example of a game that doesn't treat its subject matter lightly. But you did try Memoir 44. I did, and I had a good time. Memoir 44 is a World War II-themed miniatures game put out by Days of Wonder, who are most known for Ticket to Ride. And in true Days of Wonder fashion, this is a very light, very streamlined game, really elegant, really easy to teach, mm -hmm. which is, I think, quite an achievement for a war game, because oh, war absolutely. games have a reputation for being really complicated, mm -hmm. right? Simula more interested in simulating things accurately than being fun, but not so with this one. No, and I think what was appealing to me about it was that it, it seemed like very much about making logical choices, mm -hmm. like I had some interesting choices to make over the course of the game. It, it reminded me a lot of chess, which is a game that I have spent a lot of time playing over the course of my life and have enjoyed a lot, which makes sense because it is also a war game, or at least mm -hmm. that's where it came from, even though we don't really think about chess as a war game nowadays, but it right. is. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, again, a game that I enjoy playing, a game I wouldn't buy for my collection. I just don't, I, I don't think I'm ever going to reach for that over many of the other choices that I have nowadays, but I, I'm glad that I gave it a shot. That's the best I can say. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think what's really remarkable about the Memoir 44 or the other games that use the Command and Colors system, which it's been used across a couple of different games. Mm -hmm. Battle Lore uses it. GMT's Command and Color series uses it. Yeah. But... It's a system that manages to cut down a lot of the complexity that makes miniatures games so hard to get into, but still gives you just, it's just detailed enough that you feel like you're making important, good decisions. Yeah. And I think that's such a, that's such a delicate act. We were talking earlier about how I want designers to respect the players, and I think they've done that in the sense that they respect your time, they understand that you don't want to read a million page long rule book before you play your game, but they also understand that just because you're not willing to invest hours into learning a really complicated system mm -hmm. doesn't mean you don't want an engaging play experience. Well, and I do feel like the one of the strengths of Memoir 44 is that there's an opportunity to learn more about the history of these battles that's included mm -hmm. in the game manual but it's not required to read that in order to play. Like, if, if you're interested in learning more about the history, it's there, but it's not something that you have to slog through. Well, and it gives the game a bit of credibility. All of the different scenarios, they give you, like, a 
book with some, I think it was something like 30 different scenarios you can play through just in the base mm -hmm. game. Very generous base game, by the way. Uh, this is a game that has many expansions, but I think even with just the original box, you could probably get a lot of play out of it. Oh, absolutely. But each of the scenarios is based on a real battle and comes with a little blurb about what the context was of that battle and who was fighting in it. And I think that's something that gives them a little bit of credibility and kind of gives them a pass on, you know, if you're going to represent war, you should do your homework about it. It should be clear to the player that you have a right to be talking about the subject matter, and if that makes sense. If you are nervous about getting into wargaming, if you're curious about it, but it feels a little intimidating, which is certainly something I understand, I definitely recommend Memoir 44 for that purpose. And I can imagine picking that one up and not wanting to even go any further into it, because really, that game is... There's a lot to do in that game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was a good one. Yeah, I, it was really a nice way to spend the evening. So I'm glad that we gave it a shot, even though I, I don't think I'm going to suddenly start, you know, playing Virgin Queen. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a board gamey joke. <laughs> recommended by somebody at Geekway to the West. And why did it not look appealing? It's about whaling, and it's very brown. <laughs> we each tried to come up with two biases, and my second bias was brown Euro games. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Euro games with just very sort of dull, uh, faded art, you know, games about trading in the Mediterranean, or... Well, games like that, there's just so many of them. Like, I feel like you could have tacked on eight different titles, swapped that out with some of the other... Like, I wouldn't I wouldn't have noticed if it had different box art, like, if the box art had been wrong, because I've seen so many games like that. And just saying out loud that the game is about historic whaling. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's about a historic whaling city. When I say that out loud... Like, I get tired. <laughs> yeah, it, and then the box certainly didn't make it look interesting. Like, no. you know, I could see them picturing, like, uh, you know, brave captain in a storm. Why didn't and they put a the whale on the box? And, like, a harpoon. Like, it, there there was a way to try and make this cool. It but... comes with, with a whale and a meeple. Like, anytime you add an and a meeple, I will like it better. There should have been more to hint at that on the box. But no, the the box is just a picture of a port town, and yeah. everything's made out of wood, and there there are people in old period clothing walking around, and woohoo! It's got a boat again, <laughs> an ore transportation. Thrilling. Ooh, boat! <laughs> so we played it. You liked it more than I did. I did. So, one of the things that I found appealing about it, you know, I don't love worker placement, but I, I like it enough that I always want to have a couple of good worker placement games in my collection. And I think 
whereas many of the worker placement games I have are a little bit on the heavier side and a little bit on the longer side, this one was, it came in a small compact box, mm -hmm. and it, it didn't take us more than an hour, did it? I think it was pretty no, short. it was pretty short. Yeah, so those were, I mean, it still did a lot of the things that other worker placement games do it gave you the problem of you can never do everything that you want to, so that created interesting problems to have to solve, and you have to kind of anticipate what other people are doing. So, like, I mean, all of the things that I've liked in other worker placement games, that game let you do as well. But the fact that it managed to do it without being a huge box with a million components, I just, I appreciate it. I don't know that I need it, but I'm glad it exists, and I think it's probably right for a lot of collections. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that I really... The other mechanic that I thought was really interesting was... So, the game is played across 12 turns, and when you go whaling, as an act, what you do, it's an action to, like, prepare your boat. It's an action to launch your boat. And when you launch your boat, you do it once, and your boat is then out whaling for several rounds. And the number of rounds your boat stays out there is equal to the number of food you pack. Which is very clever. It, it is. The other problem is, the further out you go, the better access you have to more valuable whales, right? Because not all, when you go whaling, you draw whale tokens out of a bag, and then... You get the first pick of the whales. Exactly. So, it's this interesting puzzle of, if you don't wait to get a bunch of food, you can get your boat out on the water sooner, and you've got a couple of turns where you might be the only boat out there. But then someone who bothered to just take a little more time and pack food, can then launch their boat out way farther, and then they're going to get the better whales before you do. I and love then... that we're saying the phrase, better whales. <laughs> like, I have the best whales. Well, yes, and whales are all numbered, so you can yes. tell exactly how much they're <laughs> worth when you get them. That's, that's what I learned from that game. I would, I do wish we got to play it with more than two people, because I think it would have been more exciting. There would have been a lot more jockeying for position. Yeah. On, cause that was, a, that was easily the most innovative mechanic the game had to offer. And Absolutely. it was interesting. It was a decision I've never really had to make in a worker placement game before. Mm -hmm. The thing I didn't like about that game, and it's, it's something that I also dislike about the Bloody Inn, is that you only have two actions per round that you get to choose. And that's, I understand that with a worker placement game, with a lot of games, you can't do everything that you want to do. That's not the point of the game. But even if it had had three actions mm -hmm. per round, I want to be able to do like 75% of what I want to do. Right. When it's two actions, I feel I get to do 50%. And it's I it makes my turn feel so short, and I just have to wait a long time for everybody else to go before I get to go again. It just, it bothers me when there's only two actions per round. It's something that I also hated about the Bloody Inn. Well, and I think most worker placement games do all eventually give you the option of getting more actions per turn, but not this one. No. And curiously enough, this one, you've got two workers at the beginning of the game, you've got two workers at the end of the game, and that's all you'll ever have. Yeah. I would have liked it more if I could have built up more. Although, I will say, in the game's defense, and this might not be the right counter-argument for given your taste, but I do think a big part of why they don't give you more workers is because your boats are supposed to be a big part of what gives you efficiency. Yeah. Like, a, a big part of the challenge is get your boats out there, keep them out there as much as you can so that while you're working with these limited actions, you still have good things happening for you mm -hmm. on the board. I just think it's silly that in the first turn there is no way for you to put your boat out because you need to spend a turn to get food, 
and you need to spend a turn to prep your boat and a turn to get your boat out. I see what you mean. It, it does definitely make the pace of the game feel... I, I did have, now that you mention it, I did have a moment on turn one where I was almost just kind of thinking, man, that really, that, I can't be doing this right, can I? Like, yeah. is it really this hard to just get a boat launched? Yeah. So. I just, yeah, that's, I, I also just think that's just my preference, but I, I never feel like it's enough when I only have two actions. Yeah, no, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Cause yeah, it, it was it was really hard to get anything done in that game, and mm -hmm. that can be that can be a little bit frustrating. And I think I'm okay with games being a little bit frustrating, but you compare it to a game like Agricola, where the frustration is not from lack of being able to do things so much as your crippling fear that you're not going to be able to feed your family. And I think that's a more interesting tension than, ah, I, I, I can't go to the lumber mill today. Yeah. Guess I'm not going to build a schoolhouse after all, because that's terrible, you know? I... It's, it's, not, so, it's not super tense when you, the worst problem in the world is that you're just a few boards shy of building a new courthouse in town. I played one person Agricola earlier this week, and I lost by one point. Uh, oh man, I was so frustrated. It is kind of amazing. Like, if I had one more pig. Agricola is a game I would never have tried if it wasn't. I was at my friendly local game store, and that's literally the only game anyone was playing at the time. So I love Animeeples. <laughs> that's like a positive bias I have. I tried out Ryu. I don't know if it's actually pronounced that way. R Y U. Only because when I was at Gen Con, they had dragon animeeples. And I was like, okay, obviously I need to play this game because it has dragon animeeples. I didn't think it was that great, but dragon animeeples, that's all I care about. I just, a game about farming farming looked boring to me. I, I mean, I almost also, I wasn't super stoked on playing Concordia. That is a brown box. It is a brown box. <laughs> yes. It is a boring-looking game. Oh, absolutely. I'm really glad I played it, because it's really one of the most fascinating systems I've ever played. Mm -hmm. I still don't understand how it works, but... Do you want to explain what it is? I don't know that I can. I don't know I can either. <laughs> it's... I, you... One thing that's appealing about that game, I mean, it is about traveling and acquiring goods mm -hmm. across Europe, etc., but one of the things that's really appealing about that game is that every action that you take can benefit other players at the mm -hmm. same time. So it's not about blocking things off from other people as much as any choice that others take, you still have an option to benefit from. I think the thing that I ended up finding the most interesting about it was the fact that there's a slight, there's like a, sl a light little deck building component to the game. Yeah. Which, I mean, I like deck building anyway, but each card does two things for you. It gives you a better version of an action that you've already had in typical deck building fashion, but it also determines what you'll be scored for at the end of the game. And so getting a certain card not only gives you a new action, but it also now tells you that one of the things that you can build in the game is now worth more points than it was. Mm -hmm. and, and you can add to your deck, you can buy more cards. Exactly. So your deck is not only telling you what you can do, it's also giving you your mission objectives. And you actually have to pay attention to the composition of your deck just to know what you should be doing in order to maximize your point gains. Yeah. And that's fascinating. I've never had to think about any I've never had to think about something like that in a game before. It's a very tightly woven connected game. Mm -hmm. It just it feels like 
the scoring, the play, like every component, every mechanic really works with every other one in a way that I found very pleasant. Well, I think this is why we have game critics. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Good thing we don't have to do that. Right. Yeah, it's, yeah, so I don't know. Um, I guess, what was, your, what was your biggest takeaway from this little project? I think one of my big takeaways is that when it comes to game players I trust like you, people I enjoy playing games with, I, I have to trust that they know me well enough that even if there's a game that doesn't appeal to me at, at face value, mm -hmm. that I should have a good attitude about giving it a shot because you haven't steered me wrong whenever I've been willing to give a try to a game that oh, I would Oh, that's very, that's very good to know. <laughs> well, I, I think that's fair. And I also think I've realized that it's, it's okay if I have these biases. I mean, even if I, I'm glad that I tried these games, none of them are ones that I loved or would necessarily want to buy. Well, that was, that was, I think, my main takeaway, is some of these games we liked more than others, and that's fine. But I think what it really was, it was an invitation to maybe just question some of those assumptions. And I don't know that they changed, but I think we did leave with a little bit better understanding of why we have those particular biases and how much of those were actually justified. And yeah. In, if nothing else, it brings you to a more nuanced understanding of why we evaluate games the way we do. Yeah. I'm. It's definitely an experiment that I'm glad that I tried. It doesn't mean that I wanted to buy anything else, but I'm also kind of glad about that, because Lord knows I've spent enough money on board games, probably for the rest of my life. I'm not, obviously, I just bought, like, four more games. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> Even if you never want to pick up a transportation game, there's so much to choose from. Mm -hmm. You don't ever need to pick up a transportation game. I uh, just got all Gricula, all creatures, big and small. I'm a little, little envious. I want a copy of that one. And it came with the expansion. I'm so excited. Nice. Yeah. That's a good game. <sighs> All right. Well, I think this is probably as good of a place of any to wrap it up. Woohoo! Woohoo! <laughs> uh, we mentioned that we're on Facebook and Instagram. You can also email us uh, gamingandreallifepodcast at gmail dot com. We have a website, gamingandreallifepodcast dot com. I hope I got that right. And we would love to hear from you guys. What other topics you want us to cover? Uh, what you like about this podcast? What you hate about it? Tell us your biases. Tell us uh, about a time that you challenged a bias and were pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I'd love to try some of the games that people didn't think they were going to like and then ended up loving. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, until next time. We wish you good games. Good friends. And goodbye. goodbye. understand how boats work i don't understand <laughs> why because they're so brown <laughs> i don't know <laughs>